Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning. I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the senior pastor. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, Ed, for praying for us. I'm glad you are here. We are continuing a series called Capital Letters. We started the first week looking at the church, capital C Church, talking about how the church universal, what we generally refer to as the capital C Church, is the idea of the church throughout all time, of all believers, no matter where in the world they live, no matter what time period in history, and that that should unify us, and that we use the small C church talking about our local congregation or other churches. And we talked about the idea of remembering what that means for us as believers, that we are unified with other believers, and that we should never lift up our own personal C church over top of God's church. And then last week we talked about who God is, the capital G God of the Bible, the capital G God that we worship, and how sometimes it's tempting to lift other things up into that place of authority in our lives, lifting up sometimes even our own selves, thinking that we know better than what God knows, and uh, talked about that. Well, this morning we're going to talk about truth, as Ed prayed in his prayer. We're going to talk about the capital T truth. We're going to talk about this idea that... um, There are things today that are true. There is truth. There is God's truth. And then there are other things that might also be true, but they're maybe not at the same level of authority. For example, I could say that it's true that if you live here, you should be a Vikings fan. That's a true statement. Dennis would disagree. And that's okay. That's not a capital T truth that we should lift up and elevate to a different level, right? That's a a small t truth. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about what that is, because we live today in a world that some would say is post-truth. That some would say truth doesn't matter, truth is unimportant, truth is whatever you desire. In fact, we're in a post-truth world, and the Oxford Dictionary defined post-truth as this, relating to and denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional and personal belief. And in 2016, that was their word of the year, post-truth. We live in a culture where truth is relative. I can decide what is true for me, you can decide what is true for you, and um, let's just go with it. And we're gonna look at scripture and say, is that something that we should do? And there is this idea that there are some things that we should not lift up to the point of truth and argument and division and that sort of thing, but is there still truth out there? Is there still things that we should hold to? So we live in a world where truth can be seen as a fuzzy thing, and to make matters worse, we all have our own definitions of what is that truth. What is the thing that is trustworthy? What is the thing that is believable? What is the thing that we should put our faith in? And that applies, you know, all across the board. We could talk about What car company you think is the most reliable? Well, who are you going to trust? We could talk about all sorts of things. Truth is in some ways fuzzy and who is believable. And so I say all of that because we're going to watch the following video clip. And it's from a movie. It's from Back to the Future. And so we're going to watch it and then I'll kind of explain where I'm going with this. Tell the truth, Doc. You got to believe me. Then tell me. Future boy. 
Who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? <laughs> then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. You gotta listen to me. I got no practical jokes for one evening. Good night, future boy. No, wait, Doc. Doc, the, the, the bruise. The bruise in your head. I know how that happened. You told me the whole story. You were standing on your toilet, and you were hanging a clock, and you fell, and you hit your head on the sink. And that's when you came up with the idea for the flux capacitor, which is what makes time travel possible. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, Marty McFly gets sent back from 1985 back to 1955, unintentionally, and he meets Doc Brown, who he knew from the future, who invented the time machine and needs Doc's help to get back to the future, hence the title of the movie. And, and I bring this scene up because it's so fascinating to me, because put yourself in Doc's shoes, all right? Imagine you're sitting at home today and somebody comes and knocks on your door and they can pull out a driver's license that looks more complicated or different than what ours looks like today. They can pull out all sorts of stuff that you can't understand, and they pull out all this stuff, and they go, look, I'm from the future. What is the criteria that you would put to, to have them prove that they're from the future? Doc chooses something ridiculous. Who is president in 1985? He has no clue. What's he supposed to say? No, no, not Ronald Reagan. That's ridiculous. If somebody were to come and stand at your door and they said, I'm from 2055, and you looked at them and said, okay, future boy, who's the president in 2055? What answer would satisfy you? There, there's no answer out there that you'd go, oh yeah, yeah. We have no clue. We have no clue. And so what, what finally convinces Doc is when Marty says, I can explain the bruise on your head. That's it, that, that solidified it. And, and I bring that up because as much as we think that's ridiculous for Doc Brown to do, we do it all the time. What satisfies me, what will convince me of truth is oftentimes something that we really shouldn't base truth on. Who is president in 1985? I can't verify it, I have no idea. Doc Brown is in this spot. You, there, there's no rational way to, to verify that, but we do it all the time. We decide that what we think is the information we need oftentimes is not the actual truth. So we've lifted up this thing to a capital T truth for Doc Brown, it's president in 1985. That's my capital T. When you give me that information, then I'll believe you're from the future. When in reality, the information that is the capital T truth that will convince him is something entirely different. And so we're going to look at this idea of what is capital T truth and what is a small t truth. What are the things that we say, I won't believe you unless, fill in the blank. What is that capital T truth that we're looking for to fill in that blank? And when do we lift something up that really shouldn't be in that level of authority in our life? When are we lifting something up like the president in... 2055 or 1985 or whatever, when are we lifting something up that really shouldn't be in that level of authority in our life? And what should hold that level of authority in our life? What are the things that may be true with a small T that we hold up to be true with a big T? 
So how do we find the capital T truth and what does scripture tell us about truth? Well, the first thing is that truth is tied to God, not us. Truth is ultimately tied to God, not us. This is our first truth. As with Doc Brown, truth wasn't tied with him. What he thought was true didn't matter. Truth was not tied to him. Marty was from the future whether Doc Brown believed it or not. Truth is tied to God, not to us. One of the church fathers, Augustine, who was alive in the 300s and 400s, famously stated that all truth is God's truth. If God is true and truth is tied to him, then all truth is God's truth. He is the arbiter of truth, not me. Anything that I think isn't true doesn't really matter. It doesn't change a lick. If I decide that it's, you know, not going to rain at all today, and I think that is truth, that doesn't change anything. But with God, it does. All truth is tied to God. Truth does not reside with us. It resides with God and with God alone. And Jesus tells his disciples and therefore tells us this fact on multiple occasions. John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself, Jesus who is God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them by truth. Your word, God's word, is truth. So we see in scripture that truth is tied to God and truth that is tied to God is revealed to us through scripture. God has revealed himself numerous ways. We talked about that when we talked about God as well. But the primary way we have of seeing the reality of God is through the Bible. We hold the Bible to be true, to be without error, to be without mistake. But even that statement comes with significant qualifiers. In, in uh, the Reformation, one of the famous things to come out of the Reformation period was this idea of sola scriptura. You know, this idea that scripture alone will be our guide. And even that, we say sola scriptura comes with qualifications, right? We, we don't expect the Bible to tell us things that the Bible can't tell us. Like whether or not your kid should get a smartphone at the age of six, 12, 18, or 25, or never. That's not in the Bible. It's not gonna tell you, right? But, but scripture is truth. So is there a right answer there? Yeah, maybe. Do we know for sure what it is from scripture alone? Not necessarily. So even when we say scripture alone, we acknowledge that that's, we, what we mean is scripture stands alone as the authority. There's no authority higher than it. And even when we have scripture, it's sometimes hard to understand. And in fact, what I think is so interesting is the Bible itself admits that scripture can be hard to understand. One of my favorite verses is uh, John 21, 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Jesus said so much and did so much, and Jesus is the truth. And there's so much he said and did that we don't even have record of it all. So what are we supposed to do? I mean, there's stuff that Jesus said that was truth that wasn't written down. One great example of that. One of the times, if I could go back in scripture, in time, and record something on a, on a recorder and have an audio file to listen to, or at least a, a transcript, I just can't write fast enough to do it that way, is the road to Emmaus. So here Jesus has died 
and, and there's rumors of his resurrection and there, there's two disciples and they're walking to Emmaus and suddenly Jesus shows up and walks with them, but they have no clue it's him. And they're walking along and, and they're troubled and the, this mystery guest that is Jesus walking with them turns to them and says, hey, what's going on? They said, yeah, you know, this Jesus guy was here. How did you miss this uproar? Are, you know, have you been living under a rock? They killed him. And now there's, there's rumors of him coming to life and we just don't know what to do with that. And Jesus looks at him and goes, really? The Bible says it clearly. And then the, then, then the story tells us, and he unfolded God's word, starting with Genesis all the way through and explained to them how the Messiah had to die and be resurrected. I would love to know what Jesus said there. I mean, who would not love to sit there and have Jesus unfold the entire Old Testament and explain to you how he fits every prophecy? And the person who heard that decided that that was enough information for us. Jesus explained everything about himself. Done. We, we don't have it. And I would love to say that we can just open up the Bible anytime we're facing any kind of crisis or any kind of, uh, of decision and there'd be an answer in there. You know, should we, you know, move? Should we take that new job? Should we switch schools? Should I take that advanced placement class? Should I go to this college? I wish we could open it up, you know? I wish, oh, you know, Bruce, when, when you turn this age, you're gonna go to Watertown Evangelical Free Church. Oh, great. I don't have to think about it anymore. It's right there in the Bible. That'd be wonderful. That's not how God works. But we still say his truth is in God's word. And so we are called to dig in. We're called to understand what is God's word, but it must be rightly understood. We must dig in, we must take the time because it's not a recipe card that we can pull out and see the itinerary of our life. We have to dig in. And like I said, that's where it gets complicated. Another one of my favorite verses that talks about the complication of scripture is 2 Peter 3.16. And Peter here is writing to the churches and he says this about Paul and Paul's letters. His letters, meaning Paul's, contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter is writing to a group of believers and he's saying, hey, you should look at Paul's letters. They're the same value as scripture, but they are hard to understand. Now, if they think it's hard to understand, and by the way, they were the people the letters were authored to, I hate to break it to you, but Paul did not write the letter of Romans to be read in Minnesota in the in, in the year 2023. We were not his target audience. So we have this difficulty. Not only is Paul hard to understand in his context, we aren't even in his context. We're reading it from where we stand in 2023. Does that make it any less binding? No. Does it make it harder to understand? Yeah, sure does. Is it still true? 100%. But is there this ability for us to know for sure that when we read it, we have it fully understood? Maybe. I think there are some things that we know for certain from Scripture. We know who Jesus is. We know that he is, the, he is God. We know that we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ alone to find salvation. There are some things that Scripture makes abundantly clear that no matter how far away from history we are, how far away from the original experience we are, the truth is still there. But there are other things that I think we think we understand. And we might be off. 
Which leads us to our second thing. So where do we give ourselves the authority of a godly capital T truth? Where do we sit there and say, nope, I am confident that I've interpreted this Bible passage 100% correctly. I am confident that I have the best understanding of this letter that was written in a different language at a different time to a different group of people, but I am confident I have 100% accuracy. When do we claim that level of authority as Christians and when do we not? When have we elevated things to a capital T truth that maybe are not? Which leads to our second lesson from Scripture this morning, that truth requires humility on our part. Truth requires humility. A show of hands here, please raise your hand if you have never made a mistake. Excellent. A couple of dishonest people, but that's okay. We all have. We have all made mistakes. I can't tell you the number of mistakes I've made today. Because kind of like memory, we talked about memory a few weeks ago, that the idea that if we wanted to test somebody's memory, we'd ask them, what things have you forgotten? And it doesn't work that way. It's kind of the same way with this. What things do you think you're right on that you're actually wrong? I I have no idea. I have no clue where I'm wrong, where I think I'm right. It doesn't work that way. So we need some humility on our part. We have the Holy Spirit. We have all sorts of resources to look into Scripture, but there are going to be times where we are still wrong. I want you to imagine with me kind of a thought experiment that someday you're going to die. Uh, that's not a thought experiment. That's, that's a capital T truth. Someday you will die. Um, but someday we will die. And, and here's the thought experiment. Imagine yourself standing before God, but imagine that in that moment you get a report card on your theology. Okay, Bruce, uh, nice job. You figured out who I was very correctly. Nice work. The Trinity, you got mostly correct. I'm going to give you a B. You got a B on the Trinity. N times, Bruce, D minus. You were way off. You had it completely backwards. Right? Imagine if that's what happened. Now, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but imagine if it did. Now, imagine if you were to get that report card today. You didn't have to wait to be face-to-face -face with God. You, you got instant feedback from God that here is where you're off on your theology. Here's where your understanding of me and the Bible and how I'm at work in the world, here's where it's a little bit off. What would you do with that piece of information? Well, I would hope that if I got that piece of information, if, if I were to get an email from God and, uh, or a text message from God, and it would say, hey, Bruce, by the way, in your sermon this morning, you were a little off. You said this about me. That's not true. I would hope that my response would be, oh, good grief, I need to fix that. The problem is, I don't know where I'm wrong. I just know I am, somewhere. So I need some humility, right? If I'm gonna engage in truth, I need some humility to acknowledge that there are gonna be things that I think I'm absolutely right on that it might be a little off. And somebody else coming up to me with their understanding of Scripture and God's Word, and they're looking into it, and they're digging into God's Word, and they've done some study, and they're trusting the Holy Spirit, and they're believers, and they come to a different conclusion, now what? Where do I stand there and say, no, you're wrong, this is truth, and where do I step back and say, you know what? I think we need to dig in a little more. Because one thing we do know is that we are wrong somewhere. In fact, I think the Bible tells us very clearly that we are wrong. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, without error, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, if we claim that we have never made a mistake, the truth is not in us. 
Kind of like raising your hand when I ask if you've ever made a mistake. I'm not to throw people under the bus who raise their hand, but you know, there's a Bible verse that says, we've all made a mistake, right? We've all done it. And therefore the truth is not in us. Kind of like saying you've never lied is proof of a lie. We are wrong somewhere. So we need that humility to acknowledge that we are wrong somewhere. So how do we hold truth in humility? I think Jesus is our best example. One of the things Jesus says about truth in John 1:14, John writes this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We need, to, we need to, to combine our truth speaking with humility and grace, like Jesus did. The difference between Jesus and us, Jesus spoke in grace and truth, but his truth was 100% correct every time. So we need to hold grace as well. If Jesus, who was 100% correct every time, needed grace, how much more so do we need to hold grace and truth? And John and the other uh, authors of the Gospels give us some great examples of what that looked like. John chapter 8, he tells us of the woman caught in adultery. I think that's a great example of grace and truth going hand in hand. Because here's a woman brought before Jesus who's been caught in adultery. The Bible is pretty clear on that one. Don't do it. And Jesus, first of all, stoops down and starts writing in the sand. His first words to her aren't, you were wrong, that was adultery, 100% incorrect answer. And we see throughout the story that, that what he is doing is at the end, he will turn to her and say, go and sin no more. There is truth there. He says it, go and sin no more. He acknowledges that what she was doing was wrong, but he also acknowledges the deeper truth going on there that there were some people trying to abuse her in a way to get at him. He's looking at the whole of scripture. Leviticus 20 verse 10 requires both parties be present. I don't know if you noticed this, but it takes two people to commit adultery, not one. Both parties need to be present and tried. And later in Deuteronomy, we read that the witnesses are the ones who are to cast the first stone, which puts a different spin on Jesus' words, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And here we see this, this merging of grace and truth that Jesus does not deny what she did, but he also doesn't deny what they did. And how much more so for us? Or the woman at the well in John chapter four, here a woman comes to the well and not only is she female, which in this, those days was, uh, you know, male and female had uh, more distinct roles and they wouldn't necessarily interact, especially if they were not in family together. So this woman comes to the well and not only is she a woman, she is a Samaritan and he asks her for a cup of water. And Jesus knows everything about this woman because She's gonna have a conversation with him about, about, you know, why are you asking me for a cup of water? Don't you realize I'm a Samaritan woman? This is kind of weird. And he goes, you know, go and get your husband. And she goes, I have no husband. And he goes, you're correct, which is a funny thing to say to somebody. Yes, you are correct. Um, especially when it's something that you shouldn't know about that person, right? How's your day going? Oh, it's great. You are correct. Um, kind of a weird statement, but, but he says that. And he goes, but then he goes on, kind of like our illustration from the video, Marty, it goes on and says, you're currently with a man and he's not your husband, but he's, you've had five husbands before him. And she looks at him and goes, how, how, do you, how do you know this about me? 
So here's a woman that we now learn is not only a Samaritan, which means that they worshiped a false version of, of God. They didn't follow the, the Judaic law of the time. They worshiped on their own mountain, which is something God told them not to do. They mixed in pagan rituals, which is something God told them not to do. Um, but she's also multiple times divorced and currently living with somebody she's not married to. This is the antithesis of the people that Jesus should associate with, and yet he associates with her. But he doesn't call it good, but he definitely relates to her. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you, are, you ha now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. He doesn't condone her behavior, but he does validate her as a person. Other examples, he touches a person with leprosy, something you're not supposed to do. But I imagine that if you're a person who's a leper who's been cast out of society, craving human touch is something, uh, or human touch is something you've been craving. And Jesus reaches out and touch. My point is, what is true in all these situations, I think, is that Jesus is reaching them where they're the most vulnerable. He is touching them with a deeper truth, a deeper reality, and he's saying these things are, are true about you. You know, you, you were caught in adultery. You're living with somebody who isn't your husband. Those are true. You're a leper and shouldn't be touched because of the disease. Those are true. But the deeper truth is this, that in, in grace, I'm gonna to come to you with the gospel because that's what you ultimately need more than fixing these things, that those things can be fixed, but really what you need is the gospel. This kind of truth with grace and humility brings healing and hope. This kind of truth restores, this kind of truth brings freedom, which I think is our third thing that scripture will tell us about truth, that godly truth brings freedom. Godly truth brings freedom. This kind of freedom, this kind of truth that Jesus spoke into their lives brought freedom from those other sins ultimately. But he didn't start there. He didn't start with everything he saw wrong with them. He started with what their heart needed from God. What God alone could fix in them is where he started. This is the truth that you need because this truth will bring freedom. And Jesus' biggest critiques were with those who, pull, who piled burdens on others who didn't seek to lift the weight of sin, but sought instead to pile on and pile on and pile on. Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Those are harsh words. And I think those are harsh words that some of us maybe need to hear directed at ourselves. Where are the spots where we have, instead of bringing freedom in Christ, we have piled on burden after burden after burden from somebody who is seeking God. Hey, before you find God, you need to fix this in your life. Before you find God, you need to resolve this in your life. Before you find God, you need to look like me, dress like me, act like me, think like me, worship like me. Then maybe you can find God. Where have we, where have I done this? I know I have. And I need to confess that. I need to repent of that because these are not idle words by Jesus. We are called to bring God's truth to those around us, not to make them look like us. And I'm gonna throw a lot of verses at you in the coming section because 
I want to pull this thought together because Jesus is going to give us a lot of insight in how we do that. John 8, 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus here is talking about the gospel. The gospel brings freedom, not me. The gospel brings freedom, not how you act. The gospel brings freedom, not who you vote for or how you uh, worship or what you wear or what you believe. Aside from the gospel, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. We as Christians are called to be the model of what that freedom in Christ looks like. We are called to live out that freedom in Christ, that truth freedom, that idea that it's not about me acting a certain way or believing a certain way or being correct in a certain way that shows that I'm a person of God. It's by having that freedom of truth in the gospel that brings that, brings that true freedom. I go, this is the core issue that we're gonna be focused on. And these other things, while important, are, we're never gonna lift them up to that same level because what we're more concerned about is, is where you're at with Jesus. That is the core and that is what brings freedom. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Though I am free, and this is Paul speaking of how he lives that out. Though I am free and belong to no one. And, and I would add that I think he's saying except Christ. I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I've become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I've become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. I mean, look at this passage. If any burden is placed on any, anybody, it's placed on us as believers. That it is our job. It is our job to humble ourselves. It is our job to speak truth freedom. It is our job to put ourselves in that position. It's not their job to become like us to hear it. It is our job. The burden is on us. So let me ask you, where is your freedom in Christ impinging on another person's ability to hear the gospel? How, where have we lifted up our personal small t truth and in so doing shut the door in somebody else's face? Where have we piled on burden instead of lifting it off? And let me, let me maybe put it to you this way. Imagine, if you will, that I were to take you and stick you in an airplane and I were to fly you over a country you've never been to and I were to shove you out with a parachute, shove you out the back door, and you were to land in this country, and I were to look at you and say, reach this people for Jesus. What are the first two things you would do? And it's a rhetorical question. I think most of us would, the first two things we would do is we'd try and learn the language and learn the culture. If we're gonna speak truth into a different language, into a different community, into a different culture, we need to learn their language and learn their culture. And again, that isn't affirming it, necessarily, but it is being aware of it. And so I challenge you that if we're called to become all things to all people, so by all possible means we might save some, what is the culture that you're not willing to step into that needs to hear the gospel? Where are the spots where you've been unwilling to learn the language and learn the culture? Where are the spots that you have refused to see or I have refused to see the mission field right around me? We are called to bring the truth and become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might save some. 
And we cannot speak on truth without, taking, without talking about our responsibility to truth as Christians, because as Christians, we are called to be trustworthy. We have to be trustworthy. If we're gonna talk about truth, if we're gonna hold up truth, if we're gonna say we're people of truth, then we need to be trustworthy. We must know the difference between a capital T truth and a small t truth. If we're gonna be truth speakers, we must hold the capital T truth and the small t truth separately and know where that distinction is. What are the things that we are willing to fight and divide over and what are the things that we need to be quick to set down? Where are the spots where we are damaging the message of the gospel because we're holding up things that that we know are secondary but because they reinforce an opinion we have, we hold them up anyway. And we hold them up to the same level that we do scripture, the same level that we do God. Where are those things that we go, this is true, and, and it might not be the gospel, but it's really important to me, and so I'm gonna hold it up here. And we're not being trustworthy. Where are the spots where we go in and try and share the gospel with somebody, and we ask them to be open to hear a different idea than what they're used to, and we're not willing to do the same in return? We need to be trustworthy. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share where I think we see this in scripture, a story, but it's a long story. I'd encourage you to read it on your own. It's in Acts 15. And I'm just gonna kind of summarize it, but I'll share some verses from it. And this is the first one. Verses one and two. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So here's our first part of the story. There are times where it's a capital T truth that we need to be willing to say, no, you're wrong. Paul and Barnabas do that. When somebody comes in and says something that's untrue about God and the gospel, they come in and say, nope, you gotta follow Jewish custom and law. You gotta look like us and act like us and worship like us to be a true believer. And Paul and Barnabas get into, look at that, sharp dispute and debate. There are appropriate times, but they picked the things they needed to be in sharp dispute about correctly. It's about the gospel and about Jesus. It's not about secondary things. This is a salvation issue. And we must be clear about what is central and what is secondary. Central is who God is and how we are saved. There are other things that we as a congregation, as a denomination will say, look, if you're gonna be a part of our worship, we're gonna hold these secondary things up and say, hey, you have to abide by this to be part of our community. Um, But we have other churches that we work with that hold a different view. So we have these first primary issues of who God is and what it means to be saved. And there are people that say things contrary to that that we won't partner with. But there are other people that even though we disagree on some significant issues like baptism and the end times and other issues, we're willing to still be in fellowship and go, look, you're a believer and we're gonna disagree on this. So we need to know where that line is. When is it okay to disagree? But notice their posture of humility mixed with grace and truth. They acknowledge that they are not the sole arbiters of truth. They get into sharp debate. And then look, verse six, Uh, At the end, it says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. And then in verse six, the apostles and elders met to consider the question. They considered the question. They didn't get together to hand down a ruling. They considered the question. They said, look, we're not the sole arbiters of truth. We've we've looked at scripture. We've, we've, We've spent time with Jesus. We've trusted the Holy Spirit. This is what we think it is, but we're gonna get together and go, are we wrong? And we're open to hearing that maybe we are. We don't think we are, but we're open to hearing it. They went to a higher authority. 
there are times where it might be appropriate to go to that, go, look, I'm having this conversation with somebody and this is what I believe to be true and this is what I believe scripture says and I'm struggling with it. And they have a different view and and is this something we need to, to disagree on or is this something we can set aside? Go to somebody in authority. I need to do that as well. I'm not the sole arbiter of truth. That's why we have an elder board at this church. That's why we have um, pastor clusters in our denomination and district oversight is because I'm not the sole arbiter of truth. And we need to consider safely other viewpoints and need not fear. If God's truth is truth, then we do not need to fear where we find it. It needs to come in line with scripture, but we do not need to be afraid of other viewpoints that somehow they're gonna come up with something that will prove that God isn't God or something. We do not need to fear. And finally, verses 19 through 21, this is how they wrap it up. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And and what I want to share here is some of those things are things that make sense to us and some of them don't. Food strangled and blood and meat sacrificed to idols are not things that we run into today, but yet they were core issues for them back then. Instead, what I want you to see is, is that they, they centered on these are the things that in our day, in our culture, in our time, we need to really focus on who God is, what is the gospel, and then these things that really set us apart as a community. And that's it. And this is, in, in, this is a big step for them. I mean, think about it. The people who are making this decision grew up in a culture that said, no, you have to live a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way to be a follower of God. And they're saying, you know what? We're gonna center on these doctrines And we might continue to do these other things because they are worshipful for us, but we're not gonna require them of others. It's about morality, it's about the heart. Those are the things we're gonna call them to. For us in the free church, the way we say the same idea is this, in essentials, unity, and in non-essentials, charity. We do need to be trustworthy with truth. Be clear to admit when this is a core issue for us and when it's not. And when it's not, to have that grace and that humility with each other. And lastly, I want to share one more verse because I think this is important too. Oftentimes, the times that we are tempted to elevate a small t truth up is when it benefits us. When it benefits us. And we look around and we see the world and we see where it's at and there are times where it's tempting to go, look, if they can elevate a secondary thing to a truth, then I can do it too. And we think we can play the same game. And we not only need to be trustworthy in our our posture towards the world, but we need to be trustworthy in our own truth. Proverbs 12, 22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. In Exodus 20, 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. If we stand on truth, we must stand on truth even when it is not to our benefit. And if we cannot be trustworthy in the small things, why do we think that people will be compelled by our vision of truth in the big things? And if our true core issue is who God is and how you come to be a believer in Jesus, we need to not lift anything else up to that level because we don't want it to damage that message.
So as we end this morning, I ask you, where have you missed the capital T truth of who God is that you need to correct? Or maybe where have you lifted up a small T truth inappropriately? And I would challenge you as I challenge myself to consider where we're holding to truth this morning. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that truth is not found in me. God, I thank you that truth is not found in any human, Lord. I thank you that truth is bound up in who you are. And so God, as we pursue you, as we study you, God, would we find your truth? And Lord, would the world around us encounter your truth as well? God, would the world around us encounter who you are? And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you that they would come to that knowledge that God, it is only by your grace that we are saved. And so Lord, on those issues, we can have um, no disagreement as believers. But Lord, help us to be trustworthy with the other truths. God, to hold them with open hands and humility. I pray this in your name, amen. I want to run a little bit faster there. <laughs> but that was amazing. That was great. I want to reiterate what Bruce said at the very end there. I'm trying to recall that we must become all things to all peoples. And that as we're leaving church today, just be thinking about that as you enter into the real world that you can reach people with the gospel no matter what. No matter what school you're in, no matter what sport you're in, no matter what um, job you're in, no matter if you stay at home and you can reach your neighbors, you can reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and invite them here or in whatever way reach them with the gospel. I have a few announcements here this morning um, that they wanted me to go over. This week on Friday night at 7 o'clock, there is the River Valley Singers coming here to church. Um, anyone's invited, I, th I believe it is free if I'm not mistaken, and people can come here to the worship center at 7 o'clock. It will be a group of singers, so you guys are invited. Then we need candy. Coming up is the harvest party at the end of the October. Yep, that's right. On October 31st, it's a Tuesday. But we need candy as a church because this is an amazing opportunity to reach our community and invite young families and just to come into our church and just have a good time and share candy and also share the gospel with them. So we need candy. That's what's up on the screen. Candy, candy, candy. And also, there's a couple other things I wanted to say about the youth group. So um, this week from 8 to 9 o'clock, after youth group, we're having a kind of um, Watertown Unite event. I'm inviting all the churches in town here to church. We're going to be having worship. We're going to be having games, um, speed friending, um, a message, a little like a prayer time. And also we'll have a rip your floats at the end. So it should be a good time. Then this is a major thing. I want you guys to be in prayer for this next weekend. You'll probably see next weekend not a lot of youth here because we are going to Fall Fling, and Fall Fling is amazing. It's an amazing opportunity for students to hear about Jesus Christ and also just grow deeply in their faith. This year, it's a great speaker. He's a guy from Eagle Brook. Great dude. And I've talked to him once before. Either way, this is the last day to register for it. It's 130 bucks to register. Either way, it's going to be a good time, so just be in prayer for that. And you might see me on the screen next week about what's going on because I might take some videos about football, so it might be a good time. Either way, I'll pass it off to Bruce here, and thank you guys for listening. And Luke, thank you, and to be clear, Paul said those words, not me. All thanks to all people. Apostle Paul. Um, we'll end with the same, the same blessing we just sang. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.
Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.